able to get his glove back to his right as he was going left, but somehow managed to keep that out of the net. And here goes Anthony Day with a goal for the Bulldogs! Anthony Day going down, managed to rip that one, upper 90, it's like deja vu. Right as the Bulldogs get back and even strength, Anthony Day takes it all the way as his legs are taken out. What a finish. Okay. So we have a podcast dilemma approaching. What's that? Soon there will be two Mrs. Casters. Yes, my wife actually brought this up. <laughs> what what shall we do? How will the listeners be able to distinguish between the first and second Mrs. Caster? Well, she, you could do it like like you you would be the president in this scenario and I would be the vice president. So yours could be like the first lady oh, okay. of the sportscasters. I don't know what they call the vice president's wife, but Michelle could just still be Mrs. Caster, I suppose. Oh, okay. So she Tammy would be the first lady the and first Michelle lady. would be Miss Caster. Or sure. Mrs. Caster. Mrs. Caster. Me. Sure. Oh, I like that. All right. That'll work. Good. Yeah, so Congratulations. Yeah, by thank the way. you. Yeah. Um just a note to anyone out there considering engagement, go for it. But uh think it out the actual process of doing it because I didn't and halfway into it I said to myself, uh oh, I should have thought about what I was going to say <laughs> and do in this situation because it turned out to be a bomb. Yeah, mine wasn't memorable either. I think the longer <laughs> the time you're with someone, uh I ended up getting married at thirteen years, I think. So you actually beat me out by waiting waiting out because you won't be married by you'll be married by what? Like fourteen Well it was fourteen years in September. So okay, it'll be so one be month fifth- shy of our 15th year. Okay. So, yeah, I probably got engaged around 10 or 11, something like that. Well, I was sort of... Well, yeah, I just had nothing to say. And it, the thing was, she was actually picking on me the whole time because it was around Christmas time. And she's like, just like joking, like, hey, I know you got me a ring. Just give it to me. She had no idea, but she kept joking that way. So, finally, I'm like... All right. And I mean, there was no uh, doves released or yeah, I didn't, rose petals. I or, didn't run out pilot field no. or hire an orchestra. Yeah. I kind of thought that it might be a cool thing to do it at Yale this weekend because we were traveling down there with That's the what I meant by so soon on Twitter because yeah. I thought that was the plan. But uh, I kind of thought maybe that was selfish in the sense that I thought the thing she'd most be excited to do is to show her mom and oh, tell her mom right, about right, it. Right. Her mom wasn't going to be there, so... I ended up picking up the ring at like 3.30 on Thursday, walking into the door of the house, realizing she was home. I had it in my pocket and just went up to her in the kitchen Okay, and did it in there and had no idea what to say. <laughs> so it was a bust. But I honestly don't remember at all what I said. I remember you, you telling me you said something about it being on Eddie Vedder's birthday. It was because it was like that. the day before Christmas Yeah, the 23rd. Yeah. So. All right. That well, anyway, right. nobody right. really probably cares at this point anymore. No. Uh, but welcome to Season 3, Episode 32 of the Sportscasters, November 5th, 2013. Exciting show for you today. Uh, David Shoemaker, also known as The Masked Man, he writes columns about professional wrestling for Grantland and also is a contributor on Deadspin, is going to join us to kick off what will be a triumphant return for the book club this month as we have many books to talk about and feature. And David is joining us today to talk about his book, The Squared Circle, 
Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling, which I had the pleasure of reading over the last few days. And it's an old-school sportscaster's interview, Don. It is lengthy. Well. Nothing short about it. So we'll save it for the end. This way, if you decide you want to bail on it, you won't miss much. <laughs> it's mo- but it's I would recommend you don't. Though, right? Yeah, like, it is. And it's if you're into so wrestling it's right up your at all, it's, it's there. It's good. It's It's meaty. Yeah. Uh, also on the show today, we have Jeff Merrick, the host of the Merrick, co-host of the Merrick versus Wachinski podcast, with our buddy Greg Wachinski, and also a television host for National Hockey Games on Rogers Sportsnet in Canada. He's going to join us to talk about what the Sabers, what's out there for the Sabers now that they've bought him out and assumably will have a top three pick in the draft this year, among other things. Uh, but a little bit of that, and we're also going to talk to him about. Mark Arcobello and a Twitter feud that we have been having, kind of jokingly. Okay. Uh, so we'll get into all that kind of stuff with Merrick. Uh, also, we're going to continue the greatest of all time segment. Oh, next week on the show, Katie Baker from Grantland makes her return to the podcast to talk about the NHL. And maybe finally next week, we'll get around to acknowledging that the NBA season has started. We'll see. Yeah, so maybe we'll do those things next week. Uh, so like I said, book club, greatest of all time, David Shoemaker, Jeff Merrick, and three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Now let's move on to other business. The World Series is over, and for the third time since 2004, the Boston Red Sox are the champions of the baseball world. And as Fox made sure you knew (laughs) for the first time since 1918, that they closed it out in in Fenway in Boston. Good friend of mine, Josh, went down there to try and score some tickets, and this is how crazy it was. If you wanted to buy a ticket that was a ticket and not a piece of paper yeah. that you print out like tickets are often done now, right, right. four grand minimum Wow! because it was a ticket, you could get a piece of paper as low as $1,200, but cops were everywhere warning people that one out of three of them were fake. Right, yeah. I, I never trust – I don't scalp that often to begin with, but – I don't think I would ever buy a piece of paper. Like, what's keeping and that guy? Scalpers from- are using that to their favor now by overvaluing the actual the paper, paper tickets, tickets, even though those are often counterfeited as well. They can be, yeah. You know, so a crazy scene down there. And the end of what was a really entertaining World Series, we talked mostly about what was entertaining on the show last week, especially games three, three and four. And four right. uh, game six was basically. The Red Sox riding the wave of emotion and and closing it out. They smelled the blood. And uh, and they 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 squash it. It's pretty crazy. It's if you're the fan of a team that hasn't won in forever, like the fans in Buffalo are, or maybe the people in Cleveland, the Red Sox are proof that it can turn around quick. I mean, they went from 1918 to 2003, sure, having gone through some of the most miserable, heartbreaking defeats. People wearing shirts like "Just Once in My Lifetime," and now they've won it three times since then. Yeah, that's why uh, when you, you we were talking, I think on email or Twitter or 
text or something about how that they were really pushing that first time they've closed out since 1918. I said, as a Bills and Sabres fan, that falls totally flat for me. Maybe right. if you're a Yankees fan or a team that's like used to winning, uh, cool. But otherwise, I mean, good good for them. Fox just needed an angle, I guess, and they ran with that one. That's for they sure. They had already beaten the Boston strong to that. I mean, like that was there too, but. Yeah, they should have just stuck with that, maybe. couple things about the broadcast. One, Erin Andrews is really good at interviewing athletes, I think. She gets away with some stuff because she's a hot chick that maybe Ken Rosenthal, for example, who's out there with a bow tie, can't get away with. Right. But Fox does a terrible job of basically her not even being around baseball, and then bam, she's interviewing guys in the World Series. It's like she... Made so many mistakes, ones that I didn't know, like talking to a store owner who actually owns a t-shirt, uh, Red Sox t-shirt and hat company across the street from Fenway, calling it a convenience store. Okay. Which it's not. When I think convenience store, I think eggs and milk and, right. you know, cigarettes. And this guy's like actually. Seven Eleven. Right. This guy's actually selling t-shirts and hats and starter right, jackets. Right, right. And then. Other stuff like she's presenting the World Series trophy and she clearly doesn't know which Red Sox owner is which. <laughs> and that's just yeah, not her fault, yeah. I don't think. Yeah, I Boy, it's easy to be sexist when it comes to sports things, but stuff like that does a disservice to women. Like I'm sure there's women and that she know their good. stuff. She right, does she know is. her stuff. Right, she but is she's good. not like you she's, said, she's not a baseball. She's not put in a position to achieve in in that sense. Right. So she comes off looking like a dumb girl. Right. And that's not fair to her, I don't think. So I'm gonna blame Fox on that. And then the other thing which I'm gonna give Fox a lot of credit for is the way they handled the end of the Tim McCarver era which was done beautifully with a, a great video tribute and then a really touching and from what I can gather sincere uh, tribute and thank you by by Buck, who again I can ne- I'll never figure out why people don't like Buck, especially from the baseball perspective. Cause right? Yeah, I think it's more a football thing. Great, right? I hope because he's really good at calling baseball games. Really good at it. Uh, but so a good job by Fox there. All in all, it was an entertaining, a fun baseball season. Great stories like the Pirates. Uh, disastrous decisions like Craig Kimbrell standing <laughs> in the bullpen with the ball in his mitt. Uh, to really an unbelievable World Series by David Ortiz, who just had one of the all-time great World Series. So congratulations, Red Sox and Red Sox fans, and uh, let's move on. All right, let's move ahead to the NFL uh, like we do every week. We don't want to spend a lot of time looking back, but I want to talk about both our teams. A, I know it's sour grapes, but the Kansas City Chiefs are not Man, did they get lucky. the best team in the league. They have the best record, but... Uh, Stop being lazy power rankers. If you're going to put out a power ranking, don't just bait. Does anybody have them going to the Super Bowl right now? I don't think so. Uh, they got so lucky one of their players fell down got because he got beaten so badly, and Jeff Tool didn't see him when he popped back up. And Whatever. It's sour grapes. They're probably the better overall team, but they got dominated in that game, and the best team in the league doesn't get out yardage to Three the to Bills. Three to one or something? Yeah, it was really, really bad. Uh, but anyway... Bad loss for the Bills, and I was going to say to you that I'm more mad that your Saints lost to the stupid Jets than I am that they beat the Bills last week. I knew it was coming. I saw it a mile away. You know, the Jets had the disastrous game against the Bengals. They play good every other week is the running joke about the Jets. And, 
you know, they played pretty good. They were they're not a great matchup for the Saints for the Saints in the sense that maybe the thing that the Saints don't do very well is pass block at times, which seems crazy uh, when you think about the team. But really, their offensive line gets away with some poor play because Drew Brees is so good at maneuvering in the pocket. I always sort of considered him like a sixth offensive lineman, right? Because he protects himself so well. But the Jets' pass rush was so so relentless that they didn't get away with it. Those and, two picks, though, were were the receivers' faults. Oh yeah, the picks weren't Breeze's fault, especially the second one. I, I the, Colson Nick hasn't Colson hasn't had a good year at all this year, but it looked like they missed him. That they game. missed him a lot, and uh, they missed Sproles a lot, who went out right. early with a concussion, right. who's a huge. Uh, safety valve on some of those pass rushes for Breeze to be able to dump that off to Sproles right, right. is big. But the offensive line didn't get off of the bus. Uh, they're not a great run defensing team, and the Jets basically just shut the passing game down and pounded it down their throats, and they lost. They got picked off. Yeah, tough week. Uh, yeah. Also looking back, Aaron Rodgers is probably the big story of the week. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'll take that loss over the Packers loss coupled with the Aaron Rodgers potential collarbone break any day of the week yeah he's looking at i think they called it a fracture right now i think they have more tests to run but they said he's probably going to miss three weeks it looks right now i mean if it's worse than that then i imagine it'd be even longer and that team i don't think is good enough without him to to do any i don't think there's any team that is constructed around an elite quarterback that's good enough to win without it every no absolutely quarterback team in the league you take that quarterback away, and that team's done. Whether it's Breeze in New Orleans, or Manning in Denver, or Brady in New England, you just you're not going to win without that guy. Even though people can say, "Well, New England did it that one time," even though they still missed the, make playoffs, the playoffs, right? So whatever. But, yeah, I think uh, the team there that maybe would still have a shot would maybe be the Broncos, just because. Although they don't have a good enough running game, I wouldn't say, but they have so many receivers that you would think even an average quarterback could make that work but but yeah the saints uh like you said green bay new england definitely not uh looking ahead to this week it's better than it was last week for sure some, yeah monday night's not good so don't look ahead to that game you get the and eight bucks at the uh <laughs> battle the of florida yeah battle of florida everyone's looking forward to that and the thursday night game isn't great either so maybe keep your football watching this sunday unless you're a big fantasy player with uh, Peterson or RG3 or something. Peterson had one of those unbelievable Peterson runs. Yeah. Didn't he? That, that was touchdown crazy. run. I mean. The receiver kind of catches him a little bit and helps him out. And then he just is like, all right, I'm going to score now. What a beast he is. But yeah, there's some interesting stuff on Sunday. The Lions and Bears, two, five, and three teams who maybe will be the hu- the biggest beneficiaries of the the Rodgers injury. Right. Can one of these teams kind of win the next three games and be standing there eight and three with a dominant lead in the division and it's only a couple weeks away from the Lions facing the Packers on Thanksgiving right. so it'll be interesting to see if Rodgers will be back I for mean, the, that game the, right if if Rodgers is out three weeks they miss Philadelphia at the Giants and home for Minnesota so they could really and then the win. next then the next week would be the Lions game is yeah the next week so they but have, that's on a Thursday which doesn't help it is them, a shorter week right? right but my point is even though we talked about how they're not necessarily built to Maybe win. Maybe with the last those competition. Those are three Right, they can weather that. Teams. Yeah. Yeah, so that that's uh, interesting for sure. What's up with the Seahawks in the sense that they got two wins in a row against the Rams and 
Tampa Bay, but looks really close. they looked, they were much closer than Seahawks want to be, especially a home game against Tampa to be down 21 to nothing. Uh, I wonder how good that 8-1 Seahawks team really is. We'll have to see. It'll be interesting to see if the Falcons, who obviously are a disaster, can do anything to them this it's week. It's just starting to look like, especially with some of the losses this past week, that it might be Denver and everybody else. I know Denver has a loss on their schedule. It, maybe the Colts are good, but even the Colts, they had to kind of get woken up in that game to come back and win. Uh, what else do we got on the schedule here? A lot of losing teams, teams with losing records playing each other. Saints and Cowboys is about as exciting as a yeah. Sunday night matchup, maybe as we've seen in a while. Uh, the Saints are really need to win the next two home games. They have the the reason that that loss to the Jets was a, dis- a disaster for them is because they have Dallas, San Francisco, Thursday at Atlanta, tough stretch, yeah. then Seattle. Yep. So it's a tough stretch, and they're going to really need to win these. Next two against Dallas and San Fran uh, before the Atlanta, which even though Atlanta's down, it's still Rivalry. their biggest rival right. on a Thursday on the road. Uh, and then, of course, the Monday nighter in Seattle. And the reason they need to win those games, aside from looking for home field advantage, is because although Carolina Atlanta is, is so bad, door, Carolina right? looks like one of the better teams in the league. That defense is legit. They've got Cam Newton, who is a playmaker, and... Uh, if they can get any running game, that, that's a solid, solid team that if, if they don't make too many mistakes. You know, I've been wondering, and they, Carolina, by the way, should have beaten Seattle in week one. Right. They'd be tied with the Saints yeah, right fumble now on if, they, if they win that goal game. Goal to go. Right. Uh, but I've been wondering, because I've been so focused on, man, we got to get home field advantage over Seattle, right? I wonder if it's better to finish second in the NFC, because then you aren't going to have to deal with San Francisco. Is, is that right? Okay, so how would this work out? So, well, as long as you get the bye. Assuming it, Seattle finishes number one, then San Francisco can finish no better than five. Okay, so it wouldn't help to finish finish second. You'd still have to play San Francisco and Seattle to get to the Super Bowl. Right. Right? I don't know. that. It, uh, no, because if the one of the division teams... Okay, this is why, okay. Finish, I was right about this. Okay, this was my thought. So let's say Seattle finishes one, okay, and New Saints finishes, finishes two. two. Okay, the three and four are division winners. So going into Wild Card Weekend, Dallas and say Detroit or Chicago. Okay, so let's say Green one Bay. of the division winners win, and San Francisco wins. So you're the talking, Saints will get the division winner, and Seattle will get San Francisco. So assuming San Francisco finishes four. Uh, no, they would finish five. Oh, five. Right. They would play the best division winner left, which we'll say was maybe Green Bay. Okay, so let's say they beat Green Bay. Okay. Then they have to go to Seattle, and the Saints get to play the winner of the NFC East. Versus... They would only go to Seattle if they were the – it recedes, right? It recedes, right. So unless the sixth oh, seed okay. wins, they're going to so go to Seattle. the sixth also wins, right. The, the Saints wouldn't need the sixth to win in this scenario. They would just need San Francisco and the other – division winner to win yeah san francisco by the way gets michael crabtree back this week into practice anyway i don't know that he'll necessarily play this weekend but uh he's practicing and a lot of the problems they've had is he's really got nobody out there other than bolden and the tight end vernon davis so any help he can get uh because they're not running 
Kaepernick as much, although they have been lately. I, it's a team that started slow, a little uneven, and they've been good. They've been on a tear. So, yeah, you probably want to avoid them. Right. All right, last thing uh, this week. Uh, all of a sudden, there's some serious drama down in Miami involving a bullying situation in their locker room, which yeah. sort of just... I watched the game on Thursday night that they played against the Bengals. It went into overtime, and I think at that point I didn't know much about this. Then all of a sudden the next day or into that night, we hear that Jonathan Martin is leaving the team because of bullying. Then there's this report from Schefter about Richie Incognito, and he might be the center of it, and then he flashes out. And then guys like Deitch are maybe questioning uh, the report because... Incognito says they never asked me about it. Why would you report something like this without asking me? Right. And now all of a sudden, it seems like we got the smoking gun with these voicemails. Yep. Um, so I, I think this is one of two things. Uh, neither are overly good for Richie Incognito, but, I mean, he's done as a Dolphin, it sounds like, anyway. Uh, one, he is a bully, maybe a racist bully, uh, by the voicemails. Or... He's just a dummy. Like, he just doesn't... He's that guy that doesn't... Like, when you're a little kid, that just doesn't recognize when... You, oh, okay, that's... An, like, maybe he's not trying to be a jerk. Because this goes on. And I'm not against hazing when it's innocent. And you get a bunch of guys together, there's ball Carrying busting that pads. goes on. Carrying pads. Right. Buying dinner. Stuff like that. Reasonably. Right. Not a $30,000 dinner bill, like has been rumored. Right. And... One of the things that's rumored, too, is that Richie Incognito made him pay for a Vegas trip that he didn't go on. And the Bills had Eric Wood on. They have him, or the local radio station here has him on after every game on Mondays. And he said that, yeah, that's a little bit tough. He's like, we've all gone out. I was invited out as a rookie for a free dinner, they said. And he's like, midway through dinner, I realize it's free because I'm buying. Like, it's free for them, not for me. But he goes, at least I was there. I had a good time and all that. He goes, making a guy pay for a trip he doesn't go on, that's a little bit tough. So that's my point about him being kind of a dummy. Like, this stuff does go on, but maybe he took it to a point, like, where, hey, hey, this isn't fun anymore. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't, like, good-natured ribbing and uh, embarrassing a guy a little bit by making him stand up and sing his fight song. This is uh, gone to too excess like that it's been taken too far and i think bullies like this know their prey i think you know you have a situation in dallas where des bryant says hell no i ain't carrying your shoulder pads you know that's a guy that won't even do like imagine if richie incognito was trying to do this to des bryant probably wouldn't have worked out this way right but he finds a guy like jonathan martin who's supposedly shy and vulnerable and takes right. it to the extreme here. right and this guy uh now has, has gone into counseling. You just picked the wrong guy. Uh, Brian Arakpo has a quote that says, we don't know all the details, but in my opinion, I think it's ridiculous messing with a guy like that and doing what he did. I wish it was me. I would have busted him in the mouth, to be honest with you. But at the end of the day, these guys have to be smart. You really don't know who you're messing with. I don't know. I feel like we don't have characters like that in our locker room, man. I think it's kind of ridiculous. I'm kind of getting upset thinking about it. So... This is a good old boys league. It's a man's man's league. I've heard a lot of people say a man up, but all these guys that are in the league that are men are kind of saying like, yeah, there's a difference. You can go too far. And uh, and when you don't know all the details to a situation, you got to decide where to 
give the benefit of the doubt. And when one guy is Jonathan Martin, who I don't know much about, and right. the other guy is a guy who in 2003 was suspended by his Nebraska coach, then in 2004 was con- convicted of a misdemeanor assault charge stemming from an incident at a party in February, then in 2004 again suspended by his Nebraska coach for repeated violation of team rules, then in 2004 was dismissed from the Oregon football program, to which he had just transferred in September, so that was one month he lasted there. Then in 2009, he was voted the NFL's dirtiest player. In December 2009, he was released by the Rams two days after being penalized twice for personal fouls and arguing with his coach during the game. In 2011, Richard Seymour was fined $30,000 for punching Incognito during the game. So I guess there they're saying maybe he was, you know, provoking him. The only thing I would say... It just goes on and on with this guy. I'm... you never want to blame the victim, but uh, Jonathan Martin, that's his name, Jonathan, right? Right. The only thing i that is kind of coming out now is that he never went to any of the coaches or anybody. You know, he kind of kept to himself. And his parents are lawyers, which is kind of the, uh, when does this become something more than, I mean, I'm not going to necessarily just say that they're lo- dirty lawyers because they're lawyers or whatever, but I mean, it, it affected this guy's livelihood. Is there going to be some sort of legal ramifications for this? But, uh yeah, I there's more to be more to be said about this for sure. It's definitely crazy and uh some of the people that are getting a lot of heat are just the leadership internally in the Dolph like how do they not see this going on especially because like you read off a laundry list of problems that Incognito has it seems highly unlikely that he'd be able to hide his meatheadedness I guess if I feel if like the coaches on. are going to have to answer some questions especially the position coach The offensive line coach for the Dolphins, who's around the offensive lineman all the time. What did he see? Right. This is that weird area with the culture of sports. We've talked about a lot with college football having in the Penn State scandal. But this not as bad as that. But uh, it's definitely the hot button issue right now in the NFL. All right. We got a great show for you setting up here. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back to interview Jeff Merrick from Rogers Sports Net and the Merrick versus Wyshynski podcast. Our next guest is from Toronto, Ontario, and is a graduate of the University of Guelph. He covers hockey for Rogers Sportsnet and is the co-host of the Merrick versus Wyshynski podcast. With our good friend, the Puck Daddy, who describes him as a verbatious mother effer. Uh, today, he is making his third appearance on the podcast, A Warm Sportscasters. Welcome to the very talented gentleman, Jeff Merrick. How's it going today, Mr. Merrick? Verbatious. Does that mean I got a big mouth? <laughs> I think he's going somewhere in that direction, yeah. Uh, I think he probably is. Uh, next time we talk to my little chimp friend, tell him uh, his simian buddy says hi. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much for being on the show today. Appreciate it. Always love getting My a f- few minutes with you. Uh, we were kind of, we've been kind of having a, I think, joking uh, back and forth on Twitter about Mark Arcabello and his status yeah. on the Oilers hockey team. H- curious, how do you assess it at this point, given uh, the start that he had, which even I'll admit is way above what I would have expected. I think. Yeah, r- remarkable. Good on, uh, good on Yale. Hey man, uh, Yale sending sending a significant player to the National Hockey League. Um, it, it, it's, it's tough right now when, when you look down the middle of the Oilers lineup. Um, you know, I, I, I think if he's going to stay with the Oilers, 
Um, I think it's probably he's probably going to have to be a winger unless they do something with a Sam Gagne and 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 move out a, a, a second line centerman that could touch Ryan Nugent Hopkins. I'm shocked. Um, I always thought that that Mark Arcobello, and this is why you shouldn't listen to me, Steve. You know, honestly, um, I always thought that Mark Arcobello was going to be one of those guys that that existed in a um, in a zone in hockey that is the most frustrating. For a lot of people, uh, ask a player like uh, Eric Westrom or Darren Hadar or Donnie Biggs what this is all about. That area where you're too good for the American Hockey League, yep. but given your position and given your size and your skill set, you're not good enough to play top six in the NHL. It is a painfully frustrating position to be caught in uh, if you're a professional hockey league player. And when I looked at Mark Arcobello, I said, that is probably the spot, as uncomfortable as it may be, where Arcobello is, is, is going to end up and, and probably stay. Thankfully, I'm wrong because uh, this guy looks to me more and more game in and game out. I mean, great hands, great puck distribution, really smart out there. This guy belongs in the National Hockey League somewhere. I call those guys quad A players. You know, like they're not triple A, but yeah. they're not MLB players. I have this like a- I have this strange hope, this vision, like four years down the road, and the Oilers have their uh, Islanders moment with this young team where they finally come of age and they get this overtime winning Stanley Cup goal but it's not you know Hopkins to uh to um I don't know Yakupov for the the winner it's uh Arcabello to to Jeff uh, to Andrew Miller for the winner just an all Yale uh goal <laughs> <laughs> and it's a, it's and it's a great day for Yale I'll tell you what it almost it's almost as if and and I've never been one to uh, to bang the drum for expansion. Um, but when you look at the quality of athlete that exists right now um, in the American Hockey League, it, it is almost to the point where you say to yourself, could the NHL expand and not water down its product? I think we're getting to the point now where we can say yes. When you look at the quality of athlete um, that is playing internationally, either you know in, in Europe or playing in the KHL somewhere, you can look at you can look at the world right now in the American Hockey League and say, "Hang on a second, maybe there is still room uh, for one, maybe two expansion teams in the NHL and not have the product watered down as significantly, by the way, as it was in 1967-68 uh, when the league went from six teams to twelve teams." When you talk about quad A players, as I maybe silly, very foolishly maybe coined them, there's plenty of them in Buffalo. I feel like I'm watching a. Uh, Mega, yeah. mega triple A team, AHL team here every night. And I just wonder if someone who's a, a little bit further away from it than I am, someone who spends every night in the arena regretting the check that I cut to them for my hashtag suffering, which the, the GM so boldly proclaimed earlier this year. Is there anything there that I can be hopeful of? Is there any reason for me to be optimistic at all? Is there any reason for Sabres fans to to think that Darcy Regeer is the right guy to take this from suffering to something I, beyond that? I, I, I don't know that Darcy Regeer is the right guy to do that, and at the end of it, he may end up being the fall guy uh, before this team actualizes. He, he may be the guy that you know, helps to put together, starts you know, the tearing down before the rebuild begins, but there's no guarantee that he's actually going to be the guy uh, who's there standing when, the, when this team is rebuilt. As far as, you know, uh, as, far as talent goes, um, I'd be most excited about the blue line, namely the two big twin towers out there, uh, Risto Ristolainen and, and Nikita Zadorov. Zadorov is still raw, as you know, going to games right. and following the Sabres as close as you do. He is still a raw player. I, I still think, to be honest with you, I still think he belongs playing with the London Knights of the Ontario Hockey League. 
Uh, Ristolainen so, uh, is already, in, in, in my estimation, he's an NHL. He's still a green one, uh, but he's an NHL. So if I'm the Buffalo Sabres, I am excited about that. Uh, I like Gergesen's. Um, um, jury is still out for me on, on Mikhail Grigorenko. Just too much, you know, up, up and down. He's like a, a toilet seat of the stagging bill. Up and down, up and down, up and down. Can't skate. Um, and we, we, we saw him like this in the, in the Q League with uh, the Quebec Ramparts. He's a, um, a, a, a tough player to watch and even tougher player to coach because he gives you those glimpses of genius, but you don't see it for a long and, and, and consistent time. So even if I'm a Sabres fan right now, listen, I'm a Sabres fan. My eyes are on the eerie otters of the OHL. Right. And I'm saying to myself, it's one thing to be bad this year. I really want to be bad next year when Connor McDavid comes out. Give yourselves the best chance to be in the spot where you select Connor McDavid first overall. That player is a complete, like in the, in, in the, uh, in the, in the mold of a Sidney Crosby or in the mold of a Gila Fleur. He is a franchise-changing player, and we haven't seen one of those since Sidney Crosby came around 2005. So if I'm a Sabres fan, I'm saying, Darcy, or whomever the general manager is, Tank Nation, do whatever you can to get Connor McDavid. That guy can turn a franchise's fortunes around. We had Bucky Gleason on a couple of weeks ago, and I have a lot of respect for Bucky. I think he's a great writer, but I think he loves to find, yep. a, find a way to take a shot sometimes when there isn't one. And, and it came about last week with the Vanek trade. And when more information became public about the trade, one thing that he said made it bad was that the, the Avalanche had the opportunity, or excuse me, the Islanders had the opportunity to defer the pick to 2015 and my point to him was well that'd be great let them defer it the more bullets we have for that draft the better uh kind of building on your Connor McDavid point but one thing we know for sure is they they are very very bad this year and they are going to have a very high pick this year and you seem like the perfect guy to ask who are the names that Sabres fans should start looking out for this year as potential number one number two picks uh in the draft Aaron Eckblad, he's a defenseman with the Barry Colts. Uh, I think you also look at uh, Reinhardt and Kootenay, uh, who's speedy forward, uh, skilled, great hands. I think you look at Reinhardt and you look at Eckblad right away. But I think the wild card and what's going to happen in the draft this year is, is a European player, and he's a second-generation player. He's the son of a former NHLer, and that's Willie Nylander, Michael Nylander's son, uh, who is a phenomenal Swedish player, uh, phenomenal uh, forward, uh, strong in his skates, Big shot, really creative player. I, I think out of all of it, the the, the wild card is, is going to be a player like uh, like Nylander. Although we'll see. I mean, players like who knows? Like by the end of it, Jake Furtanen, who plays with the the Calgary Hitmen, he may jump up and he may be that guy. There's a player in Oshawa, the Generals organization, Michael Del Call, uh, who last year played with Boone Jenner and has, even though he lost Boone Jenner this year, has stepped into that first role spot. And, and has excelled, and is already one of the best hockey players in the Ontario Hockey League. He's another guy, I think, that jumps up into your, into your top five range. So those are, those are some of the players that right now, if I'm a, if I'm a Sabres fan, that's, that's where I'm looking. Nylander, uh, Reinhardt, Ekblad, and Michael Del Call of the Oshawa Generals. Last thing about the Sabres, I think the most important thing left on their, in their season this year is turning Miller and maybe Miller and Molson into assets for the future I, I would think that the plan is to flip Molson maybe not I don't know but certainly it's time to move on from Miller in your opinion what is it what is a realistic and good fetch for Ryan Miller at this point that's a, that's a tricky one uh, and it all depends on, on the goaltending market and, and who has that need um, and goaltenders are your own unique breed as well I, I think you're in a situation with Ryan Miller where you're waiting for the big injury 
you're waiting for the goaltender uh, who, on a competing Stanley Cup team, on you know, a team that you know is going to the playoffs, that loses their goaltender to like a horrible knee injury for the rest of the season. That's when Darcy Regeer has leverage. Otherwise, you just flip him as a sort of depth goaltender, and he does have the, the, the no-trade clause, so he controls where he's going to a certain extent. Uh, you're just trading him to someone you know, as a, as a backup rental as you're just trying to get something in return. But I think if you're Darcy, you play that waiting game. You're watching your highlights every night, and as horrible as this sounds, Steve, you're hoping a goaltender gets injured for a playoff right. team so you can pick up the phone and call that general manager that same night. Almost as horrible was when I heard the news that uh, the Colorado Avalanche's goalie was arrested. I was like, oh, call them. You know what I mean? Like, Nothing yeah, to do with I know. nothing it, to do with the situation it's, it's, itself. Just like, oh, there's an opportunity for Darcy, you know? Yeah, it, it, it's bizarre the way in in sports you have to completely dehumanize yourself, right. and your your sympathies aren't with the athlete or the athlete's family or the the situation you're going through. Your your first instinct is, hmm, what does this mean for me and my team? How can I use this horrible situation? To make my team better, it's a it's a bizarre thing, and I guess unfortunate about sports. Right, and and just to be clear, I, I meant uh, I didn't mean to make light of that. I wasn't speaking of the situation specifically. Just like, oh, there's an opportunity. Nope. Yeah. Um, yep, I know what you mean. I I grew up a, an unbelievably huge Pavel Bure fan. Hockey is as big a part of my life as it is now, probably because of how in awe I was of Pavel Bure, and I was yeah. super excited in back to back nights to be able to one on Friday watch. My brother and his Yale Bulldog teammates raised the national championship banner at Ingalls, and then to know the next night that, you know, Pavel Bray, who's also probably the reason my brother's a D1 hockey player, uh, had his number raised uh, to the to the rafters in Vancouver. Uh, what, what about as you for you? This was a long time coming for Bray to finally get his his number up there, mostly because of the way it ended, probably in Vancouver, but. Talk a little bit about. I'm just curious about your feelings covering the game on Bure and and on him being the fourth player to have his number retired in Vancouver. One of the most exciting players I ever watched, and the one word that comes to me whenever I think about Pavel Bure and think about the way he played is the word sudden. Uh, we've seen fast players, we've seen quick players, we've seen speedy players, but the one thing about Pavel Bure is everything that he did was sudden. Suddenly, Pavel Bure makes a cut across the ice. Suddenly, Pavel Bure gets a shot off uh, his opposite foot, and no one saw that coming. Suddenly, Pavel Bure streaks up the ice. The one word that keeps coming back to me about Pavel Bure is the word sudden. Everything he did was quick and changed the entire momentum of every single play that he was part of. He was one of the most uh, offensively creative players I ever saw. He was never really much um, uh, to, to mind his own knitting in his own zone but he more than made up with it from the, from his own blue line out. He was one of the most sudden and creative hockey players I've ever seen. There are a few guys where you say when the puck is on his stick, dots down, it's going in. Pavel Bury was that guy. He was he was money in the bank. Um, unfortunately, like you know, so many players before him, when we think of Bob Yor, uh the injury to knee injury specifically uh, shortened what should have been a much more longer and dynamic career for the Russian Rocket. I, I loved everything about watching Pavel Bury play. Jeff Merrick is the host of the co-host of the Merrick versus Wyshynski podcast, and he's always tight for time. But we appreciate him making some of it for us tonight. You're going to be covering covering the uh, the Senators tonight, and Corey Conacher is a guy who yeah. I always tease Wish about because when he was the MVP of the All Star Game in the AHL, I had Wish on a couple of days later and was like, "Hey, what about this Corey Conacher?" And he's like, "Who?" You know, and I was like, oh, this kid, he played at Canisius, and, and I'm not claiming to be like a scout. I just knew about him because I know him. 
and uh, was here to, mm-hmm. to watch him play. But uh, enjoy that tonight. Thank you for being on. And maybe just as a last word, tell us a little bit about what you think Conacher, who, who got off to his blazing start playing with St. Louis and Stamkos, but has maybe struggled a little bit since then and even a little bit in Ottawa this year. But what do you think about Conacher and his long-term standing in the league? Yeah, three points so far this year for Corey Conacher hasn't been the uh, the the best start. But then you're seeing that. I think that's more of a symptom of the entire Ottawa Senators uh, organization right now, and and that squad under the uh, under the you know first year captainship of, of a player like Jason Spezza. This is still a team that's uh, you know fighting hard to find out their identity. Paul McLean has the lines in a blender uh, pretty much every single night. We'll see if he the Columbus Blue Jackets uh, this evening. I had to go over my notes here in a couple of seconds and get the reports from the rink. Uh, to see where where Conacher and the, the rest of the Iowa Senators players are actually suiting up this evening, but it's been a challenging and at times chaotic situation in Ottawa this year. Um, I'm willing to give a player like Corey Conacher, who you know works as hard as anybody in the league and has had to fight uh, every stereotype about a small hockey player uh, his entire career. You know the the old stereotype, Steve, is, is still very much alive. Um, a small hockey player has to prove that he can play in the NHL, and a big hockey player has to prove that he can't play in the NHL. And that's something that Corey Conacher and players before him like Marty St. Louis have, have always fought. And that's why I'm always willing to give the benefit of the doubt to a player like Corey Conacher who has, you know, to be generous, struggled so far early on this season. Well, I hope that Corey can do as good a job proving he can as Tyler Myers is doing yep. he can't. <laughs> Should have gone back to junior, man. Should have gone back to Kelowna, to the, the defense factory. We all know that, whether it's Luke Shannon, Tyler Myers. Go back for more seasoning. Thank you so much for doing this, Jeff. Thanks, Steve. Anytime, bud. All right, welcome back to the Sportscasters. I want to thank for the first of two times Jeff Merrick for being on the podcast. The yeah. guy's so great that we need to thank him twice. Yes, and uh, we'll, we're, we're a little late coming back into the interview because we were celebrating the fact that I just got an email that we're going to get Artie Lang on the show. That'd be awesome. So we'll talk about that more at the end. But uh, all right, the greatest of all time for this week, the way we do it is we each nominate. Three different things in three separate categories. I think we declare something. Time. Yeah, we declare. Yeah. Declare. We don't nominate. No, that's, We're saying that's weak. This yeah. is the greatest of all time. Right. Thank you for that that correction for sure. All right, kick us off this week. What is the greatest of all time in said category? All right, I want to actually serious a little bit with my first one and sports related. So uh, that's a first for me. But the greatest stat line of all time, uh, you can argue that greatest players and stuff and you can get into arguments i don't think there's any arguing that wayne gretzky's stat line is the greatest of all time it is the most impressive he's got the one stat line that and everyone uses the same stat but it doesn't make it any less amazing that if he never scored a goal he would still be the highest point getter of all time so wayne gretzky greatest stat line of all time you know who's number two in points which surprised me a little bit marcel dion no he's three right he's five he's five um Who's number two in 
points. He's not surprising because you, like you don't know who he is. It's just surprising because he's known for something else more. I would say. Okay. Um, no, it's Mark Messier. Messier. I see him more as like a leader and uh, like a gritty guy. But I mean, obviously, he... give me the top five. Um, Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messier, Gordy Howe, Ron Francis, Marcel Dion. Gotcha. Ron Francis would be a tough get for someone. Yeah, long say, career hey, give for me the him, top right? five. I mean, he might have been. How many average hockey fans do you think pull Ron Francis out in the top five all-time points? He's got the lowest uh, points, points per, per game. game of all the top five, slightly behind how. I'll give you my sports one first, too, at the end of the World Series this week, and it was a pretty good one. It made me think, what's the greatest World Series of all time? And they've been playing this thing for over 100 years, and I haven't been watching it for 100 years, so I'm going to narrow it to the greatest World Series of since all time since 1990. Okay. I, I remember the 1988 one, and I watched the ni- all of the games in the 1989 one. So you could even roll it back to 88, whatever, however you want to put it. Let's just say the greatest World Series of all time since 1988. And there's been some good ones, but I'm going to go with 2001 Yankees and Diamondbacks. Had just about any, everything. It had the sitting president on the field in a bulletproof vest, throwing out the oh, first that's pitch right. yeah. just a few weeks after the attack of the nation on September 11th. So we had that. The Yankees had a two-run, two-out, game-tying home run off the closer in the ninth inning in Game 4. Then Derek Jeter had a walk-off hit in that game. And then they had another game-winning or game-tying two-out, two-run home run the next night. So in back-to-back nights... The Yankees got the closer of the Diamondbacks uh, to surrender game tying home runs Kim? with two outs. Yep. Yeah. And then it also had a game seven walk off ninth inning game winning hit by the home team when Gonzalez got the game winning hit off Rivera improbably. Uh, so that will be my nomination as the or my declaration of the greatest World Series of all time since 1988. Yeah, I mean it's we don't hide the fact that I'm not a big baseball fan on here, but I remember that Kim was the closer for those two losses, and I remember exactly where I was when uh, they won the World Series. I was in the Fredonia Williams Center. I think it might have been a. When did you have to spend your points for meal plans? Sunday nights, maybe? Yeah. They reset on Mondays? I think I was there spending the rest of my points, and the game got close, so I just sat there and watched the rest of the game in the cafeteria there. Incredible drama and incredible World Series, for sure. My second thing is uh, falls under the other category, I suppose. I'm going to say, and I'll say this non-sports, so we don't uh, offend any of our sports buddies, but the greatest non-sports podcast of all time. And I'm going to say this from my point of view. It's got to be a comedian, right? And something I listen to now. I'm going to if I was giving like the award for like a lifetime achievement award, I think it would have to go to Adam Carolla. I think he kind of made it possible for everybody to do what they do. But I'm going to say the greatest podcast of all time for my personal opinion is the Nerdist podcast with Chris Hardwick. Uh, It's just it's totally up my alley. Uh, I don't even particularly like the guest hosts all that much on it, but I think he seems like one of the nicest guys in the business, and he's everywhere. He's got a show on Comedy Central now. It's like after Colbert. It's called like At Midnight, and his podcast is great, and it's if you have any nerd-related culture, video games, uh, board game, dork stuff, like 
he talks about it, and he gets great guests to talk about it too, which is really interesting. So Nerdist Podcast is my greatest non-sports podcast. If of all I were time. to nominate a greatest non-sports podcast of all time, it would be the Daves of Thunder podcast with Damashek and the show Humorous, because that wasn't oh, a sports that wasn't podcast, sports, right? Yeah, I guess not. That was uh, on the Corolla Radio Network, and they That's did right. talk about kind of... sports, but it wasn't about sports, and it was short-lived so that might hurt it, but man, was it good! Yeah, I think Carol is phenomenal, and he gets good people around him too. I like his guest, uh, whatever you call him, like co-host, even less than I like the Nerdist co-host. So that hurts it for him. All right, I got a music one, and this is one that I'm pretty sure I don't think it's debatable. The greatest three-piece rock band of all time is Rush. Uh, someone could probably make a strong argument that they're the greatest rock band of all time. I wouldn't go as far as making that argument, but when it comes to just three guys, a power trio, I can't think of one better than Rush. They have been doing it for 40 years. They've been doing it successfully for 40 years. They've had more hit records than just about any band ever. I think only Elvis Presley has had more number one records than them now. Really? Or platinum records or something like that. I don't know the stat exactly, but they're way up there there. Uh, They're following is loyal and massive. They sell out arenas all across North America, South America, and in Europe. And uh, they're one of those weird bands that seems to have even gotten stronger and more popular with age. A band that maybe in the 80s was considered only for nerds. Well, those nerds that loved them in the 80s are in prominent positions around pop culture now and have made it cool to like them. So yeah, who I, people would argue. Yeah, well, I'm curious. Uh, and I don't agree. I think this is a band that benefited from tragedy, but Nirvana was a three-piece band, I believe. Nirvana was a three-piece band, and they were very, very important in the yes. history of music. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, but unfortunately, they really only had three studio albums. Bleach, right. uh, Nevermind, and In Utero, and then Incesticide, which was like a B-Sides type album. And then the Unplugged album. Green Day? Green Day, no way. Um, just it's hard to find actually a list of this. I'm on a message board. Uh, the police, no. Is Rush? Does Rush? Like when I think Rush, my first thought is Canadian rock band. Yeah, and but, I, I think the Tragically Hip are the greatest Canadian rock band of all time. Maybe that's the so story. Rush because the, the thing Rush is, is universal appeal though. Rush is from Canada, but they're not a Cana- They're not Canadian music. Okay, you know what I mean? Like they're. They're from Canada, but their their music is, you know, very rarely was made in Canada. You know, sure. the band wasn't really centered in Canada. They toured all over the world. I don't know. This guy says the Jimi Hendrix Experience was a three piece band. Again, probably not enough work. Yeah, I mean, that's and the people, band is about for the Jimi Hen- right, Hendrix, right. not the Experience. But I, I will feel pretty comfortable at saying that. Rush is the greatest three-piece rock band of all time, but if you disagree, by all means, yeah, that'd be an interesting one. Send I, your I, disagreements to the sportscasters at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at sports underscore casters. I haven't seen a more compelling. Nirvana is a good one. Yeah, that's probably the closest one. Cream, I guess, was a three-piece band. Uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and I guess they had N. Young, so that'd be a four-piece then, right? <laughs> um, our last one, or my last one. Yeah, we're, we intentionally, yeah, we intentionally set up a conflict here. 
because we thought it was a, a one that would surely be debatable and somewhat topical. It's actually one I thought of too that I didn't write down. Uh, the one reason sometimes I have trouble writing things down, and I don't know why. No one's going to hold me accountable for these other than picking at me on Twitter. But uh, some of these are very fluid. Like my favorite podcast, that's a very fluid thing. I'm sure if someone asked you like what your second favorite Pearl Jam song is, that might be a kind of fluid argument. But so that was my thought with this one. But uh, Whatever. I, I think I have one that's been my favorite for a long time. So we went with favorite Halloween treats. The greatest Halloween can't the greatest Halloween treat of all time. So what we're saying here is you go in your costume up to the door, you knock, you say trick or treat, what is the greatest thing put in your bag? And we admit that if someone put a Rolex in it's gonna be that cooler. might be better than a candy bar. But that isn't given out. Yeah, I think that's yeah. where we're going with this candy, right? right? I mean, yeah. unless you had like a dollar bill or something as there. But even then, I'm going to say the greatest Halloween candy, and we'll go full size Three Musketeers bar. That's exactly what I had a wow. Three Musketeers bar because the, this is the way I thought of it. So, what are you going to get? Well, you might get a sucker. Okay, it's not yeah, that. It's terrible. You might get like a Tootsie Roll or a bit of honey. All right, those are okay yeah, treats. I think Tootsie Rolls are underrated yeah, a little but bit, but it's, it's not that. No. you know, That's not what you're hoping for. Nope. What you're hoping for is to get a candy bar, and the bigger the better. Sure, right. You, right. You, you, like, there's Snickers and Milky Way. They can be really small, these ones you get, like these little square things. Yeah, they call them fun size. Right, and then you might get a bite size. Yeah, that, I don't know how But what compare. you're really hoping to get is a full size. Right. And I think the best candy bar to get is the Three Musketeers. Yeah, so, I think this is one of them things, like I said, that's, that. that's, that's, that's amazing, really. But yeah. uh, it's fluid to me, but sometimes I just don't want anything else. I don't want to chew. I don't want nuts in there. I don't want crispy things in there. I just want uh, that perfect whatever that is. Nougat. If we pulled 100 people, Snickers bar would probably be the number yeah, one, Yeah, I think right? so, too. But again, it's sometimes sometimes in my ice cream. I don't want sprinkles or whatever. I just want ice cream, and that's how I feel about the candy bar. And Three Musketeers is always, always good. You're never not in the mood for a Three Musketeers. No one offers you a Three Musketeers, and you're like, no thanks. All right, for me, the greatest World Series of all time was the 2001 World Series between the Diamondbacks and the Yankees. Uh, the greatest three-piece rock band of all time is Rush, and the greatest Halloween treat of all time is a full-size t- Three Musketeers candy bar. And I declare that the greatest career stat line of all time in any sport is Wayne Gretzky's. The greatest podcast, non-sports podcast of all time is the Nerdist podcast, and I agreed with the Three Musketeers. We'll be right back with one last thing. <laughs> I was just thinking to myself, why the hell is that the intro for the book club? <laughs> Do we have any like reason behind that? No, I think we no. just typed in. We wanted something like grand, and I, I think I might have just typed in fanfare. And it's actually a, a fanfare from one of the Final Fantasies. I, I don't know which. It's just it popped up. It sounded exciting. All right. Anyway, welcome back, book club. The book club has been just kind of chilling in the background in sportscasters world here and right. it is back for November and of course it'll be around in December and probably going forward it's a good time for the book club because with the holidays approaching many people are releasing books it's a good time i guess to try to sell your book during the holidays and during the month of November we are going to feature three books as part of our book club and they're going to cover three very different subjects Okay. So let's roll them out. The first book is authored 
by our next guest, who is David Shoemaker, and he's also known as the Masked Man. You may know him from his work uh, originally on De- Deadspin, where he wrote the Dead Wrestler of the Week column. Oh, yeah, yeah. He now covers wrestling more frequently for Grantland, and he has a great book called The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional, Professional Wrestling. Since he's on the podcast today, I've already read this book, and I do highly recommend it. I really enjoyed it. And it is grim in the sense that mostly it's about wrestlers who died before they should have died. Right. But, well... That's wrestling's history, I guess, right? I mean, that's really what wrestling... I don't know how you write a book about wrestling and not talk about those who have died because you probably can't watch a wrestling event from the 80s or 90s and not see a dead guy in it. But uh, we'll talk more about this book with David in a few minutes. Uh, Also, one of our book club book of the years was by Jeff Perlman, a book called Sweetness about Walter Payton. So I thought it might be interesting to check out a book called Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears and the Wild Heart of Football. Uh, Rich Cohen is the author of this book. Rich is going to join us later in the month to talk about it. I haven't started it yet, but I'm looking forward to checking it out. Uh, Cohen was 17 years old when the Bears won their first and only Super Bowl. He was in the Superdome when they defeated the Patriots, and in this book he recounts the Thrilling story of their soul championship season, as well as the history of the franchise and the early NFL. So, looking forward to talking more about Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears, and the Wild Heart of Football by Rich Cohen. Not one of the Cohen brothers. Mm. You know, he's not one of the filmmakers. Ethan and Joel, the other guy. maybe? Yeah. yeah. It's not, he's not one of them. That might not be right either. And then to do something <laughs> completely different. And we like to do that once in a while. We Joel are, and Ethan. I was right. Okay. We are going to feature a book called The Kennedy Half Century, The Presidency, Assassination, and Lasting Legacy of John F. Kennedy. Why, Don, are we featuring such a book? Well, on November twenty second, 1963, the nation will celebrate, if you can use the term celebrate, the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, which I so boldly proclaimed a few weeks ago on this show is the greatest, the greatest assassination in the history of assassination. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds pretty goofy at yeah, this point. Yeah, not in that way. Right. Uh, but And also, I'm going to be in Dallas for Pearl Jam just, I don't know, six days or so before the 50th anniversary. So I thought it might be fun to get an expert on the assassination on to talk about it. And you won't be able to go far in the world the next couple weeks without stumbling upon this. Uh, the Travel Channel has a new show called American Declassified, which first episode featured the Kennedy assassination. Uh, the book by Bill O'Reilly, Killing Kennedy, is has been made into a movie, uh, which will air this Sunday, and features Rob Lowe as President Kennedy. And all kinds of other specials, I'm sure, will air about the assassination. And we're going to feature a book, which Don is going to read mostly, um, it's about 600 pages long, so I've assigned this to Don. It's only 600 pages, huh? Yeah, that's it. looks it. bigger than that. Yeah, only 600. But don't worry, the font is at least eight-point size. Ooh. Yeah, so. it's exciting. Yeah, the, it, it's probably only, I don't know, 200,000 words. <laughs> uh, but I've assigned this to Don. He's going to read it and compile notes for me to do the interview with Mr. Larry J. Sabato, who is the uh, 
presidents, I guess, or the chairman of the history department at the University of Virginia. And we're going to have him on the week of the 25th to talk about the Kennedy half century. So three books for the book club this month, all varying uh, topics. We're going to take a break and we're going to come back and interview David Schumacher. After the Schumacher. greatest of all time. No, I think we've botched this in a way. So this is the order, which whatever, you'll figure it out. But the order is three things, an interview with Jeff Merrick. Then the greatest of all time. Oh, okay. Then the book club updates, and then the interview with. So David. we recorded this out of order a little bit. Maybe, but whatever. It'll all be pieced together, and you'll figure it out. Yep. The worst thing that's going to happen is maybe two times I'm going to thank Jeff for being on the show. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to happen twice probably, but uh, we'll be right back, and uh, we'll have David. Our next guest is from Parts Unknown and is a regular contributor for Deadspin and Grantland. He's been writing about professional wrestling since 2009 and is the author of a newly released book, The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling. He is making his first appearance on the podcast today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to David Shoemaker. How's it doing today, David? It's going really well, man. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you for having me. For being on, we really appreciate that, really appreciate the time, and you know, I was excited about the book, and, and I, let me give you just a little bit of background about me as a wrestling fan, because I think it's a little bit relevant in the sense that I was seven years old when I watched WrestleMania three, and it was probably the, you know, the biggest moment of my life at that point, and looking back, maybe one of the most exciting days in my childhood, I, I think I started... Uh, watching wrestling around the build-up to the WrestleMania two match between uh, Hogan and and now uh, Bundy, that was right around the time. And then uh, WrestleMania three was the first pay per view I watched, and uh, I think I stuck with it right around till WrestleMania two thousand. And then I kind of faded away a little bit, and then they sucked me back in with the DVDs. I mean, I think I buy four or five wrestling DVDs a year because. First of all, they, 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 they're really well done. And second of all, I just, I don't know, I, I, I enjoy, I, I, I try to watch Raw, and I, I guess I just don't have the connection to the guys that I used to, so that, that, that hurts in a way. But I don't know, I guess I'm more of an old school fan. But I really enjoyed the book because it's really, I think about two years ago, I wrote a blog. I was watching WrestleMania 3 for maybe the 2000th time. And I wrote a blog just about each guy that had passed away in that event since then and it was so alarming and your book is to a large extent extent about that in the introduction you actually write that you set out to write a book about deaths and wrestling and it evolved into maybe more about that actually the exact quote is this is a book about dead wrestlers uh but why don't you give me before we get going just tell me a little bit about the background that you have as as a wrestling fan Wow, um, I think I was a couple years earlier than you, um, but I was just about the same timeline. Those early WrestleManias with Hulk Hogan were uh, were pretty were, were were very much defining moments for me. Um, I have a very clear memory of uh, being of watching on my parents' bed when the Million Dollar Man uh, uh, brought out the fake the, the 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 he paid Dave Hebner to have plastic surgery like Earl Hebner right, or vice versa and had to. 
And, uh, yeah, I mean, and I was just, I was like screaming. I was a mess. My parents were just like, oh man, what have we gotten into letting him watch this <laughs> stuff? Uh, but uh, you know, I dedicated the book to them because they didn't make me turn it off. Like so many of my friends who got banned because they, uh, because they, you know, knee dropped their sister or something like that. Um, but I, but, uh, so I see, yeah, I started watching around then and, and for a variety of reasons, just kept on watching the whole way through, um, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, so we got we got Jerry Lawler, Jerry the King Lawler's Memphis Wrestling every Saturday morning, um, and that was a big thing because you know I love the WWE. I write about it for Grantland frequently, um, but you know especially back in the '80s, it was this sort of like Technicolor zany wonderland uh, that didn't have as much an, a, of a, an attachment to reality as some of the old NWA territorial stuff had, but I got that through uh, Jerry Lawler and Memphis Wrestling. Um, so, yeah, I watched. I was watching all that stuff, finally made it. I moved to Texas for high school and got to go see the Sportatorium where World Class was filmed, the Von Erichs were, um, and uh, luckily made a really good friend who's a, uh, who's a uh, much more established writer, sports writer than me, named Brian Curtis, who writes for Grantland, too, coincidentally. Yeah, yeah, he's been on our yeah show. I know. I, I, yeah. I remember listening to that, and um, and uh, yeah, we we hooked up in in high school, and we're both wrestling fans, and ended up uh, buddies in New York for for the better part of ten years, I guess. I mean, and we're still good friends. And uh, I think it was mostly because of him, because you know, like once you get to a certain age, uh, it's easy to let the wrestling fall by the wayside. But because we were buddies, we would, you know, be sitting around watching basketball or football or whatever. And if none of that was on, then we would just watch wrestling because, you know, we, we, neither of us are going to make fun of it for the other person. <laughs> um, and then, uh, yeah, and then, you know, that it, it was really, though, when I started writing for Deadspin uh, about mostly, I mean, the column was called Dead Wrestler of the Week. It was right. about all these deaths that I really reengaged. And when I started covering the current product for Grantland, um, you know, I say it was it, it it was kind of the best thing that ever happened to my fandom because you know it could have been, um, you know it it could have made it all seem like a job, but you just really you know you have to engage so closely that that every moment matters in a way that it might not have done before, um, and I and I just you know I, I just love it now. I have two similar experiences to to things that you said in there. One was that. So I told you about you know WrestleMania three, and I'll go back to that a hundred times in this interview because I love WrestleMania three. It's like one of the best days of my life. Um, and uh, one of my most anticipated match that day was the Steamboat and Savage match because I was so sucked into that storyline. You know, I just couldn't believe that Savage would do such a heinous thing and to hurt Steamboat's throat like that. And um, his recovery was so inspiring to me, and that match was just epic. I mean, I. Still, I, I think it's one of the best ever. And um, a couple months later, TV taping in my hometown of Buffalo, New York. And Dad's nice enough to get the tickets and take me. We had great seats. And Steamboat comes out to defend the title. And, you know, I'm feeling good about it. I think he's got it all the way. And, unfortunately, the honky-tonk man beat him. And I cried right there in the in the uh, Memorial Auditorium. Uh, my dad's lap. It was, it was about as devastating as it could be. I couldn't believe it happened. It was an injustice. His feet were on the ropes. It needed to be overturned. I couldn't believe, couldn't believe it happened like it did. And uh, so that was a really bad moment for me. And then another similar thing. It was interesting how you mentioned about being since writing for Grantland and, and being brought brought back in. And on a much smaller scale, uh, 
right around the the Monday Night War era, sort of like maybe starting from a month or so before the WWE got back on top. I wrote a really um, a really small and uh, there was a uh, email newsletter called the Jobber Report, and I used to write uh, the Monday Night Raw recap for that. And I remember even though probably 30 people read it, how serious I took it and how excited I got to watch Raw every week and to take notes and to be able to do that. So I can relate to that. But you mentioned uh, the Dead Wrestler of the Week columns, and those are some of the best best wrestling writing I've ever read. I, I remember the first one I read was maybe the Savage one, which certainly wasn't the first one, but it it caused me to go back and look at so many. And I feel like maybe this book is almost a, an evolution uh, of that, of those columns, a, a way to to give each of those stories maybe a, a broader scope. Did, when you wrote this book, did you think about the success that you had writing those and, and maybe say that that's something that I'd like to take to a bigger scale? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's 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 exactly where it started. I, I uh, uh, Right around the time, I guess, I was I, – I got – I was – negotiating with Grantland, I, uh, I got approached by an agent who said, you know, we, we should, you have this dead wrestler of the week stuff. We should just turn this into a book. And that's sort of what we started pitching. Um, and then, you know, and, and, and I, and I, the, you know, the point of the series or one of the points of, of the series was to kind of give a window into the time, you know, into the, into the wrestling world of the, of the, you know, throughout the guy's career. Um, and that was the part that all the publishers we talked to really latched onto. I mean, they love the, they love the conceit, but it's sort of a, you know, for, for Deadspin, it was, it was this sort of ironic pitch, right? It was like, it was the, the title Dead Wrestler of the Week, like, got people mad or got people, like, bizarrely interested, and they would come in and maybe get something they weren't bargaining for, especially with some of the ones that went, like, 3,500 or 4,000 words. Um, but, uh, but the publishers were, you know, they, they, they didn't want to push the book of dead, the book of the dead wrestlers or whatever. Uh, they wanted more of a wrestling history book. And I said, well, we can, you know, we can find a way to do that through these stories. Um, and obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of supplemental material in the book. That's not just specifically about one wrestler or another. That's, that goes into some pretty deep history. Um, but I, you know, you know, I was always a fan and when you when I started writing the book, uh, I realized you know just the depth of the material that I was working with, and you start to feel like a real obligation to the history and uh, and and to the you know just the legend of the of the wrestlers and of the world, and and it uh, it, it didn't take too much trouble for the, to flesh it out into a into a book length project. Yeah, you know I mentioned how much I love the DVDs, and part of that is because of how much I love the history. Of the sport, and I think one of the great things about this book, one of the more pleasant surprises for me, is how much of what I thought I understood about the history you were able to kind of correct. And I think you maybe even mentioned it also in the in the introduction about how, like like wrestling itself, its history and the way that we maybe understand it is maybe not exactly rooted in truth. And you you went through kind of debunking, I don't know if I want to call them myths or even that you intentionally were debunking them, but it seemed like some of the things, maybe for example, uh, talking about how uh, we always hear that Vince McMahon's father would have rolled over his grave had he heard about uh, the way his son was changing the business. And you mentioned in the book that there's some reason to believe that that might, be, might not be true. And I wonder, is there any of any things like that that when you discovered them really shocked you or interested you or surprised you what about this notion of finding out that 
the history as we maybe have believed it isn't exactly true. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the wrestling world, probably different than any other sport or any other kind of entertainment, is just rife with this sort of mythology. And I mean that, I mean, I, I'll use that word in positive ways and negative ways, but now, I mean, I mean, as far as to, to be a historian, it's a negative thing. It's a lot of fun, but... Uh, you know everything that you everything that you thought you know is colored by someone's point of view, um, and all these guys, you know, it's either it's either one that they spend so much time in a fantasy land, and their and their number one concern in life is is putting themselves over to use the wrestling term. Uh, that way, you get a lot of kind of blurred stories. Uh, but the big thing is kayfabe, which is you know the right. the word that means the protection of the business, protection of the big secret, uh, which is that you know it's a put on. Um, and, you know, even though, you know, I write in the book, and we'll probably talk about this later, that, you know, it was never, it was never a secret to the degree, to the degree that some people think it was, uh, it, the wrestlers and wrestling promoters certainly, like, built their lives around this notion. And, uh, and so, you know, you'll have first-person interviews that are, that are, that, that should be, that should be really enlightening. And really, it's just someone who's giving you 15% and still holding back on 85%. So when you actually try to, you know, when I actually went in and tried to figure out things that were true, I realized that a lot of the things that I took for granted, that I'm, that I'm assuming a lot of people take for granted, are, uh, are a pretty far cry from reality. And it was, and it's, you know, it, it, I'm not going to say it was shocking, but it's, but it definitely was eye opening. It's so interesting that that you, you you said you know used the kayfabe thing, and you said exactly what I struggle with all the time because I love, like I said, reading these books and watching these DVDs. And the first thing I want to discover when I sit down is, okay, am I getting the real story here or am I getting kayfabe? You know what I mean? Like I want to know that right away. And sometimes these guys are so good at it that I don't even know. You know what I mean? Like sometimes it can be so convincing that I'm not even sure if I'm, if I'm getting it straight or if I am getting a protection of the business. And is that frustrating for someone like you who's trying to write a really honest portrayal of the history of the business? Uh, I mean, I don't think that the people you talk to even know how how honest they're being right. with you a lot of the time. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it can be frustrating, but I, I, you know, for a project like this, I, I didn't, um, you know, I just kind of found the truth as best I could, and uh, and you know, I write in there too that it's uh, you know, it's it's the caveat is that it's it's a it's a, it's a fan's history. You know, I mean, I, I'm writing from a fan's point of view, so if I can find the closest thing to truth. Uh, if I can make it make sense for me and for my readers, then I think I've done a good enough job for now, anyway. Um, but you know, it'll be the history of wrestling will constantly be evolving as as more and more voices, you know, come out and more and more, you know, evidence sort of lends itself to the cause. Um, it's a little bit more difficult when I do some present tense stuff when I write for Grantland and I interview guys, uh, and you know, you know, you're being worked on some level. You know, I mean, you 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 know that that they're holding back and the man the, when sometimes a guy will say something and laugh so nonchalantly uh you'll you'll want to believe him 110 percent uh but you know you can find out later that he was just totally pulling the wool over your eyes you did a really incredibly interesting interview for grantland with uh, triple h i think right around wrestlemania time maybe a little bit after me it was summer summer slam summer yeah slam. okay did you feel like you were getting getting real candid stuff there or did you think it was a mix or how did you feel about about that absolutely i did i mean and there's i mean there's there's evidence that i did in the sense that he he said a lot of things that that uh 
are kind of demonstrable, but that he hadn't said out loud before. Um, but you know, his job is to, well, like I said earlier, his job is to put himself over, you know, his job is to make the WWE look good. And you can argue to, I mean, you could make the case to him or to his PR guy that the best thing he could possibly do is to be open and honest. And I think he was for the most part, but, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, he's looking out for uh, his best interests and the company's best interests. Well, I'll tell you that when we walked out of the room, Bill Simmons was in there with me, and, uh, you know, we, it, it was supposed to be a really formal interview, and we ended up just kind of chilling in Bill's office. And as soon as I noted, realized that, that Triple H was saying interesting things, I just threw the recorder on the table, and I said, you know, guys, we're going. And uh, the situation was, was such that, it felt really relaxed and everybody was, and everybody was just kind of talking and being really open. And there was a lot of like, you know, good back and forth. And every question I had written down went straight out the window. Um, there were a couple of things that I wished I could have touched on. Bill and I kind of commiserated about it after the fact that there were a couple of bullet points I didn't hit, but it was just one of those things that, that I was just like, we were in such a zone that I really felt like we were getting good stuff. And as soon as I, if I, if I picked up the piece of paper and started reading, I was worried I was going to, that the whole, the whole facade would come crashing down. Um, which is a long way of saying that, yeah, I got, I felt like I was getting, I was getting a lot of honesty out of him. Um, but at the end of the day, you never know, you never, you never know if you're getting worked by, uh, worked by the game. Yeah. I had a long, long conversation with kind of, the, the person in my life who's the biggest wrestling fan that I know, and I was kind of agreeing with what you just said, and he was kind of a little bit more skeptical, but he's just that way by nature. But I thought it was an incredibly entertaining interview, and I thought you guys really did a great job getting way more out of him than I would have thought, than I thought the second before I clicked on and started reading it. You know what I mean? I was expecting it to be much more guarded than it actually was. So Yeah, I mean, it was amazing. We, we, I got really lucky because, because he just ended up staying you know, 40 feet, his hotel is like 40 feet away from the Grantland office out there in LA. And, uh, and I had been talking to their PR guy and he had offered me a bunch of stuff. And I said, I think the only, I think the only person that, 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 uh, my readers would really care about, about me interviewing is triple H. Um, I mean, I think I mentioned a couple other guys, but I was like, if you, you know, I mean, that's, that's number one. Um, and it was kind of, we played it by ear. We didn't really know if he was going to be able to make it. And then he just wandered into the office. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it was, I, it, I think, I think if it had been any other situation, if we had podcasted it or put it on video, then we would have gotten a much more guarded, uh, much more guarded triple H, but, but, uh, you know, it, for what it was, I thought it worked out really well. You know, this is something I'm always curious when I talk to someone who spent so much time and effort as it takes to write a book like you did. A lot of research, a lot of interviews go into things like this. Was there anyone that you, a couple things, was there anyone you wanted to talk to to get a first-hand perspective that maybe didn't make themselves available that you wish did? And, and then at the same time, is there anyone that did make themselves available and after you're like, that was a waste of time, you know, they, I just got nothing from them, you know? Uh, for the book or just in general? Well, for the book, mostly, because I, I want to 
give listeners an insight to the book, but maybe even in general too, if you have something. No, I mean almost everything. Almost everything in the book is. I mean, there's very little interview background in the book. There's some. There's some anecdotes from people I talk to and stuff like that. But once you start interviewing people for a project that expansive, it's just rabbit holes. You know, I mean, you can talk to you can talk to any wrestler, and they could they could give you a hundred pages worth of information and, and, it, and it's, and you know, it's about one page of usable stuff because I was covering, you know, I covered a thousand, I mean, a hundred years in the book. So it's a, it's, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's not a lot of room for personal stories. Um, you know, in general, when I interview people, you always feel that way from time to time. I mean, you know, it's not like I've, I mean, a bunch of times you do interviews and, and you realize kind of, five minutes before it starts that you're on basically just a telephone rope line and you're getting, you're, you're the 15th guy that that guy has talked to in a row. Uh, and sometimes that, sometimes you can, you can kind of get, get them off guard and, and get some good stuff out of them. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of times you can't. So, um, you know, it's, it's having that. Now, if you want to talk about people who I would have loved to talk to, I mean, I think that there's probably a, I mean, uh, there are, there are a lot of the old school promoters and guys who who worked for the old the old school promoters who were probably who would have been incredible fonts of information. And I've always said that if there's one book that I would love to ghostwrite, it would be Jim Ross's history of professional wrestling. Just to sit down with him for a month and listen to him talk and and just turn it into a book. I think that would be like the one project that would really be that would really be worthwhile. Yeah, actually, the first thing I thought of when I heard about his retirement, whatever, last month was like, okay, time to sit down and write that book, Jim. You know, I think that anyone who's been a fan of wrestling in the last 40 years or whatever is really hoping that that's going to turn into 500 pages of really interesting interesting stuff. Because I think if anyone, he has a pretty great story to tell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was there. He, he came in on the ground level and uh, and worked his way up and just was exposed to so much different stuff. And, you know, unlike a lot of the wrestlers who, who, who might have had similar, you know, career paths, uh, he's not a performer and is not so invested in um, making himself look like the winner of, of every situation. You know, I like how the book is sort of set up into eras. There's, you know, there's the part, there's the WrestleMania era, is one, the traditional era, the golden era, the WrestleMania era, and then goes into the modern era. As a as a fan, is there a, spe- a specific era or time of wrestling that's most interesting to you? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, as a as you get as I got into researching the book, I mean, absolutely, the territorial era has always been what's like most mystifying to me and mo- and probably most intriguing um, because I remember being so affected by uh, you know the Von Erichs versus the the Freebirds like brawling like crazy like that that's the stuff that really really got me and um, you know I was that was sort of the tail end of the territorial era right before WWE took or w, the WWF took over um, and I mean that stuff is that stuff is uh, I mean deeply I mean just so so cool so I mean so much fun and you were talking about the WWE DVDs I mean one of the one of the great things um, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm a big fan of wrestling and I'm very critical of WWE from time to time. Uh, but one of the things that they can be most proud of, uh, despite, you know, the fact that they're being a monopoly isn't a great thing. And for a lot of reasons, but they have all these tape libraries now, and they've been incredibly good stewards of wrestling history. Now, you know, does Vince McMahon make himself look a little bit better in some of those DVDs than or some of those documentaries than he than is absolutely true? Well, sure. Well, every you know every documentary has a point of view, but uh, 
like the Mid South DVD that they just put out. It's totally great. You know, the I mean the AWA one. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's so much good stuff there, and you can actually get in and see a lot of these old matches. Um, you know, in really good quality that you just wouldn't have been able to see otherwise. So that stuff's really cool. Uh, I'm also a huge, like a huge fan, hugely interested of the in the really early TV, like the 50s stuff on the Dumont Network, and you can still see some of that on YouTube. Um, and it's like, it's so weird just watching these like starkly lit black and white videos of of uh, these these. I mean, it's really like watching the stop motion animation in Clash of the Titans in a certain way because it's like these are gods that are just like lurching across the screen. And uh, you know, the storylines are simpler. They they didn't have all the they didn't have you know six hours a week of TV to do. Uh, and you know a pay per view every month. So, but but it's it's still really really cool to watch. You mentioned the the historic DVDs about the different promotions, and you mentioned also being a fan of the the World Class Championship Wrestling. And that I'm curious to get your take because the World Class Championship Wrestling history has been told in the form of the WWF's DVD that they put out. And there's also an independent one that's sort of longer and, and, and takes a little bit of a different approach. And I remember when I watched the, the WWE one, someone's like, well, you got to see this other one. It's better. It's not done by Vince. It's the real story. And I remember I watched both and had no reason to, to prefer one over the other. But I, I just – I walked away thinking that the, the WWF or E1 d- did a better job. As someone who's maybe a bigger fan and maybe knew a little bit more about the promotion going in than I did, do, do you have a preference there? Yeah, I mean the the story behind that's kind of I mean that that's not my favorite of their of the, of the WWE DVDs for for the reasons that that you were talking about. Um, well, uh, I, the the backstory is that they were doing the independent one. Um, the, you know, WWE owned most of the tape library, but not all of it, or, or no, yeah, or something along those lines. Um, so basically, what happened was when they heard that there was one being produced, they slapped one together of their own. Um, and it was really good, but it was more of sort of like the Michael P.S. Hayes history of world-class wrestling than it was just a full-fledged documentary on the subject. Um, you know, I've said before that, you know, those WWE documentary DVDs, whatever, um, they're so great that they make you, they, they make you forget that they're probably leaving 90% of the important stuff out. And I, I mean that as a compliment because there's got to be a limit to what you have in any, any time you're spending 90 minutes on such a huge subject. Um, but yeah, I mean, that one came from a really specific point of view and it was a really great documentary. I mean, really fun for wrestling fans and it hit on the major points. Um, but I definitely think if you want to, you know, if you want to get any sense of like what world class was like, you, you should probably, you should probably watch both of them. You, uh, in the book, you have some, some sub sections kind of in there. And, and one that I thought was really interesting was the, uh, race in wrestling, which is kind of if, if someone has the book, it's it's just past I think in the middle of the S. D. Jones chapter, right around there, and um, it was always something I thought about, and I, I, I'm going to reference WrestleMania three a lot just because, like I said, it's such a big event for me. But I remember thinking about this one day when watching it, like, all right, so when we look at race in this event, it's like, well, Slick gets torn up by Tito Santana, who's constantly called um, Chico in the in the um, in the DVD by Jesse Ventura. And then you have um, Koku Beware wrestle a guy called The Natural, who's an African-American guy with dyed blonde hair. And <laughs> and, it, and, it, and and thinking about that at the time, I'm like, all right, th- th- this would just, 
they, they get killed now. And then, and then you have the junkyard dog, obviously, who comes out with a chain around his neck and is forced to, uh, to bow and kneel at the feet of a Midwestern white guy. And, and dance at the end of every match. Right. <laughs> so I was just thinking, like, all right, so obviously these accusations that I've heard kind of whispered throughout my life that maybe Vince McMahon maybe was racist, maybe the business in general was racist, you kind of touch on that really well in the book. And, and I'm just curious to get your thoughts on what you found when you look back on race and wrestling and maybe how it's evolved and how it's changed and if you think it's reflective of how r- race and the way race is handled in the country in general has evolved and changed. Um, well, I mean, Junkyard Dog, just to get it out of the way, is a really singular example. I mean, he came, he came up in uh, Deep South, when uh, you can imagine that the audience was was uh, was not the most racially harmonious, but he was immediately pushed as a good guy. Now, there's a lot of reasons why that kind of stuff would happen. Um, there are a lot of promoters who would say that they can't have black guys be villains because the crowds would riot every time they won. Um, but he was pushed as a good guy, got a huge black following and a huge white following because he, he was the hero. Uh, and and really broke down a lot of racial barriers in, in Louisiana and Mississippi and, and, and that area of the country. Um, then when he came to the WWF, uh, I mean, it was more of them sort of appropriating an existing character and, uh, and just sort of turning up the volume in the direction of, like, cartoon lunacy, you know? I mean, it was, like, I don't... I think that for so many of the examples of of race and wrestling, and this is not to give anybody a free pass by any stretch, but for, in a lot of those examples, it's just uh, short-sightedness in terms of like the racial implication and uh, an, over, like a, an undue interest in um, just entertainment and, and not really thinking through the process, not really thinking through you know, what they're putting on out there in, the broader, in broader terms. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, overall, the the track record of, of the pro wrestling industry is really terrible for that sort of thing. Um, and you know, when I wrote about it, I just sort of cataloged it because there's you know the 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 argument that you would end up making would just be uh, you know it'd be it's it's hard it's hard to be um, it's hard to be impartial in this day and age about that sort of thing. Um, so I did. I went through and. And, uh, you know, and there were a lot of guys that I talked about, like, like Rowdy Roddy Piper, like Michael P.S. Hayes, um, uh, Don Morocco, Greg the Hammer Valentine, guys that would just say, I mean, and, and the announcers, too. I mean, guys like Jesse the Body Ventura and whoever else that would, that would just say, you know, really, really deeply offensive things. But uh, if you want to make a defense, and I think it's somewhat justifiable, they're playing heels, right? So, uh you know, this is a less, it's a less politically correct era, so you, can, you just can say some things on TV that you couldn't say now. Um, and they're, they're not trying to get the crowd behind them by doing things like calling Junkyard Dog Boy. They're, trying to, they're, they're, they're doing a thing that, that a villainous person would do, that a wrong-minded person would do. Um, and so, you know... There's a lot of instances like, you know, like the, the Freebirds showing up at Comiskey Park with their faces painted with the stars and bars that you would just kind of be like, yeah, and now I'm, that wouldn't happen. But, you know, it was a reference to the Road Warriors having face paint. You know, it wasn't a reference to like, you know, the oppression of black people, which, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that 
that it wouldn't it wouldn't pass muster today and it's really hard to look back and see these things on video really you cringe constantly when you're when you're when you're reviewing it but uh um you know it's just it's just such a weird it's just a silly world and everybody is drawn in such broad strokes um that if you take on a really specific issue like race uh it's it it's you're bound to find instances of just like incredible offense yeah i think Piper also said that the biggest regret in his career was, I think it was WrestleMania six when he came out painted half white and half black in his match against Bad News. I think it was six. I think. Yeah, was- I mean, and that and that's just the weirdest thing ever because I didn't even I didn't understand that for ten years or something. You know, I mean, and then at some point, I, some it, it, I read, you know, oh, it's because Bad News Brown is like half black, and you're like, wait, what? Like that was <laughs> like, and that so he just decided to paint his body half black. Like that's the crazy thing, and he was the good guy. You know, I mean, what is the most insane thing? Like that's the sort of stuff that that kind of like that kind of really offends me. Where it's just like, wait, you thought that would be a funny joke for like the whole world to see? Like that's really that's kind of insane. Um, yeah, I mean, but he came from that. I mean, he was a villain for so much of his career and his first like taste of superstardom that he was working in, I think I wrote about it in there. He was working in, um, in California feuding with, I believe the Guerrero family. And I mean, this is back in the seventies and, uh, there's a huge Hispanic crowd in the audience for the, for that stuff. And he came out, he, at one point he had offended them by using all these racial epithets and stuff. And, and, uh, and came out into the ring and insisted he was going to apologize for everybody um, and by playing the Mexican national anthem on his bagpipes and played La Cucaracha instead. Um, which, so that's just like, that's the background of Rowdy Roddy Piper. And so anything, uh, you know, or they say all the best guys, when they, turn to, when they turn from bad to good, they don't stop being bad. They just accept the cheers, sort of. Um, and, you know, maybe he took that a little bit too far when he, when he started painting himself half black. You know, one thing I was thinking about when I was reading the Junkyard Dog section, you were talking about just how over he was and how he might have been as over as anyone, maybe besides Hogan. And I know Jake the Snake has made the point several times that, you know, he even thought, he has argued that he's even was even more over than Hogan and that because of that, Hogan would hold him back. Do you think that during the 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 Hogan run and the Hogan era, do you buy into the fact that that his ego, Hogan's ego and stardom held uh, many guys back from uh, achieving what they might have been able to? Because I think when you think about it, you mentioned a guy and you're like, yeah, no, he was never champion. Or, yeah, Piper, he didn't even hold the belt until, you know, the Intercontinental title that he defended against Bret Hart in eight. That was like his first title. And it's like, how did that happen? And then you think, well, there was only three of them and they didn't change as much. And well, Hogan had it the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I, listen, I'm not going to defend, like, Hulk Hogan's ego and any kind of, and the backstage maneuvering that he certainly was a part of. But that said, a lot of that is just guys who were victim of the time period, you know? It's, it's, hard, it's, it's hard for us today to remember, like, that, you know, Hogan was functionally the champion for a decade, you know? I mean, he would drop the belt and, and, and get it back on occasion, but um, things just move so much more slowly, you know? I mean, this is, there was, this is a period where there was one pay-per-view a year and then two and then three, uh, and everything built to those. And there wasn't the, there, there, I mean, you know, the weekly show was, you know, they, they taped three or four episodes at a time and they didn't advance, they didn't move the ball at all on those shows, you know? Um, so, you know, if I think if, 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 if those same guys were on the show now, you know, if there was some weird time machine situation, I'm sure Junkyard Dog would be, uh, there, you know, would have had the opportunity probably to win the belt a time or two. Um, and, you know, the other thing is that, 
you know, he was, he was so over in the South. I mean, he was more popular in the South to sort of answer your original question before WWF than, than Hulk Hogan was. I think you can definitely make that case because Hulk Hogan had a publicity machine behind him like no one had ever seen. Um, but the other circumstantial thing is that Hogan was young. Hogan was a completely new body type for the industry in a lot of ways and a new sort of celebrity. And, uh, you know, the most important thing for the WWF was having this iconic hero and not what it is today, which is the sort of like intricacy of storytelling and, uh, and like, you know, the intrigue of, of anything can happen anytime. The sportscasters are here with David. Shoemaker, he writes about wrestling for Grantland and has a great new book out called The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling. Uh, Just kind of talking, jumping all over the place here in wrestling history, talking about a bunch of different things. And one, one, uh, another, you know, we talk about how sad it can be when you you look back at any tape and you, you start to realize how many of these wrestlers are no longer with us. And I think one question that comes up a lot is why, and then maybe who's to blame and i think when we think about baseball and and the issue of of steroids one thing people will say a lot is well if someone told you that you could take a pill and by taking that pill you could be the best at whatever it is you do or better at what you do or good enough to earn millions of dollars at what you do would you do it and that's a really tempting question and but to get it but what i'm trying to ask you here is when you look back at all these deaths as you have done in, in a really well-packaged book. Uh, do you do you wonder to yourself, like, man, there should be someone taking some responsibility for this? Or do you wonder, like, why this happened? Or, or where do you stand on, on that issue? As we know, Vince McMahon has defended himself very vehemently that, you know, well, hey, hey, it's not our fault. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think that what the WWE has done is is better than what the NFL has done, and definitely Major League Baseball has done in a lot of ways. Although Major League Baseball, we're not talking about uh, the lives of the players to the degree we're talking. We, you know, it is in wrestling and football. Right. Um, and I say that with a little bit of irony. The you know WWE doesn't have the, the wrestlers aren't unionized at all, and they're functionally a monopoly now, so they don't even have to compete with someone else to provide a better work environment. But that said, I think, you know, this is sort of an example of the, you know, the success of free market capitalism. You know, they've realized that, that there's value in, um, in the public relations success of being the good guys in this situation. And um, over the past several years, they've taken the concussion thing really seriously. They've, they do rehab now for all former employees who get into drugs or anything else. Um, and you know, they're, they're, they're really good about, about, you know, paying for the wrestlers to, to, when they get injured to rehab that way and to and have time off. And, you know, they're, they're good about that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, I, I think overall the wrestlers who we see, uh, now are, are guys who grew up as fans. And it's that sound, maybe that sounds kind of uh, silly to like separate that out, but it's not. I mean, in the 70s and 80s and 90s, especially in the 90s, maybe we had a whole lot of guys who were failed football players or basketball players, that kind of thing, or a lot of them were football players in the era where when you blow out your knee, your career was over, but maybe they could still be wrestlers. Um, 
and they just were living these these rock star lives on the road in the 70s and 80s and and kind of you know just overdid it a lot and it's not just the steroids i mean it's really probably hardly the steroids when you think about it you know it's painkillers after every match because they're beating the hell out of each other um or out of themselves and then you know they'll snort some coke to get it to to get excited so they can go out partying that night and then drink like crazy so they can fall asleep at the end of the night and then more painkillers and the cycle keeps going um, and that's how these guys, for the most part, I mean, steroids might have played a part in this too, but I mean, they ended up, I mean, most of them just ended up with hearts that couldn't hold together. Um, but, you know, to go back to your question about taking responsibility, I think it's hard for someone like, I'm just trying, just from a purely practical perspective, it's hard for a guy like Vince McMahon or like Roger Goodell to just be like, yeah, this is on me. Um, for the for for the PR purposes I was talking about before, and what's more important than them apologizing is them changing the industry and changing the status quo and making um, and making the industry healthier for the people who are in it now. Um, and and I think WWE is, has actually done a really good job of that. You know, I have a I have a theory that I'll admit is not incredibly thought out. So if if you need to shoot it down, go ahead. But I was thinking about the changes that have have come in football and the reason that those changes have come mostly is because a group of former players got themselves together and were loud enough to make the point known to the people that would that would be be able to spread the message to a point where where people would take the need for changes seriously and i wonder if a problem in wrestling has been that the people who needed to get together and make that point just died instead so they weren't around to make that point and i wonder if a guy like mick foley for example who's not that old and already is clearly really really beaten down but maybe isn't the kind of guy who's just gonna die one day and is gonna actually live for a long time and by the time say he's 80 he's gonna look like he's 140 and i wonder if maybe maybe the, there's going to be more guys like that around to make this point, and I wonder if maybe that's going to cause for more change. But it almost sounds like you don't think that there maybe needs to be that. Maybe the WWE well, has already done a lot of it. Well, I mean, a point I was I, I was going to make earlier and lost track of my line of thought was that a lot of the guys who are wrestlers now grew up as fans, so they saw the same, kind of, the same string of tragedy that you and I did. Um, and you'll hear from any number of people that – you know, the WWE locker room, the, all those wrestlers are more likely to be in their hotel rooms playing Xbox, you know, after a show than they are hanging out in the hotel bar, um, which was the only place that you would find wrestlers after shows back in the 80s. Uh, so, yeah, and in, in, some, in, some, in some sense, it, it sort of has corrected itself. Now, you know, what you're saying about Foley, I think, is a great example, although, you know, the counterargument is that with medical science now, you know, guys can... can, can hold it together they can get they can have two replacement hips and maybe they limp and groan but they look a lot more human than uh a lot of the wrestlers from the 50s and 60s who ended up just like paralyzed by the amount of time they'd spent they'd spent abusing their body and not even like with drugs and alcohol just like just wrecking their body in the ring uh so so yeah i mean i definitely think that that you're right about the nfl thing um in the sense that you you know you have guys that that you know the guys and the wrestlers who who might have been sounding this alarm or or might have been the guys who died but uh but you know wrestling the wrestling for so long just attracted such a weird sort of personality um and living that life of kayfabe that life of of 
pure fantasy um, is not a healthy life, uh, especially when you're when when you you know bring drugs into the mix, uh, and uh, you know I, I, you definitely don't want to give the industry and the people in charge a free pass. But uh, in some sense, you know when you write about the guys to the extent that I have, you realize that there's a small degree to which Vince McMahon is right that you know this is a certain sort of people making making decisions you know on their own and there was really not a lot you could do to help them one guy who I think I would be fascinated to be able to sit down and talk about this stuff with is the dynamite kid uh, even though I know he'd be probably so incredibly bitter but I don't know I would just love to hear more I, I mean I read his book and I feel like there's a lot of bitterness in that and maybe that hurt it was really interesting to read his book and then re- read Bret Hart's book because a lot of the same you know both of them coming through Stampede there's a lot of the same stories there and uh, it was interesting to hear the Dynamite Kid side and then hear Bret Hart's side um, I don't know if you ever thought of it that way but uh, I don't know he's someone I, I would be really interested to talk about this kind of thing with yeah in a lot of ways I think Dynamite Kid and I read his book too it's really it's uh, it's really great once you kind of give yourself over to it it's sort of like reading like a lowbrow version of James Joyce or something where you have to like totally invest in the writing style. Um, but, uh, it's a, it's a really good book. And in a lot of ways he, he would be an amazing guy to talk to from, for me anyway, because, um, he's like the one guy on the kind of dead wrestler of the week checklist that didn't actually die somehow. Um, like he, of all, of, of all the living wrestlers, he seems to have been kind of the closest to it and not, and not actually kicked the bucket. But yeah, there's a lot of animosity, you know? I mean, there's a lot of, um, in his life in particular, there are a lot of instances in which he was, uh, he was just sort of let down by, by people he was close to. I mean, you know, his relationship with Davy Boy Smith, uh, you did you know he has a lot of he has a lot of legitimate complaints about the way that went and um and also you know just kind of like when you hear over and over again that you were the best wrestler in the in the world but you know you were just too small to make it that's got to have some sort of effect on your on your mindset if he were alive today i mean if he were alive if he were young today uh he would be he he could probably be one of the biggest wrestlers in the world um, yeah, he was great, but you know, he just didn't, he just came along at a time when that wasn't, that wasn't going to be feasible. And, um, you know, really just, uh, abused himself. I mean, he's one of the, he's one of the guys for him. Steroids, I think were a real, like a real, real problem. Um, just in the sense that he was walking around with muscles that his body couldn't support and, uh, and, you know, was constantly, overtraining and, and, you know, just kind of driven insane by that part of it. Um, and, and, you know, he was, he was one of the most notorious hard livers too. So, you know, I mean, it's, it, it's understandable that he would have a lot of resentment towards the wrestling world or the industry, um, you know, going from the heights of WrestleMania glory to a wheelchair. But, uh, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard to engage. It's hard to watch him in interviews now. It's hard to, read his book and on some level because it, you know, these stories are also sad. Um, when I try, when I write about guys, it's, it's a really important part of what I do to make the stories not feel sad. Um, to make them be really, you know, kind of uplifting and full of like happy memories and reminiscence. And when it comes from the point of view of one of, of a guy like, like dynamite, uh, you know, it's a sad story told by a sad person, and it, and it's just not it's it, it's not 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 as much fun to engage. I think 
they're, uh, when they dropped the titles to the Higher Foundation, that was another one of those like moments for me as a kid. Like I remember like going into the kitchen and just complaining to my mom for 25 minutes about like what a joke it was and how the the referee was just such an idiot and like oh man was I mad. But uh <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh let's just a couple more things and I'll let you go. I'm taking way too much of your time. Again, it's David Shoemaker. Uh you know him from Grantland and his new book The Squared Circle Life Death and Professional Wrestling. These books come to me with these like white sheets of paper that point things out and they also have these quotes from from people who've read the book ahead of time and one was one that i read that was pretty interesting was from mark titus who uh who uh wrote a book um that we featured on our podcast as well and he was nice enough to come on and talk about it and he wrote that you know he's read a lot of wrestling books and this is one of his favorite and made me think that oh wait i've read a lot of wrestling books too and 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 maybe if you go into the barnes and noble or into the the sports section on the bookstore on itunes or whatever it's it's crowded and i just wonder maybe what you might say to someone making a decision why why is this book the one the one to read well uh you know i mean there there are a, lot, there are a handful of wrestling books that i treasure um but uh i mean mick foley's book is, is far and away at the top of the list i would think but uh for and i would think most people would agree but um have a nice you know day the first i one. i came up are you there? Yeah, yeah. Have a nice day. The first one would be the one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, but you know, I, I I don't want this to sound the wrong way, but I came up, you know, a fan of writing. You know, I I I uh, I am friends with writers. I you know was reading the guy like guys like guys who write on Grantland before Grantland existed, um, and. Uh, Mick Foley's a great writer, and a lot of the guys who write these memoirs aren't aren't the sort of writing that I just like to absorb. Um, the other thing is that there's so many of the books are memoirs, like I just said, that it's just like one point of view, and you really need a strong voice to pull that off uh, and to go into depth and really and to you know really give a full fledged view of the of the wrestling world. Um, and and for me, you know, as the kind of fan that I was, there just were, there weren't there weren't a lot of books out there that uh, that that did. I mean, that, that really intrigued me. Um, it, it's mostly you know kind of one person memoirs or, or books about one wrestler or uh, you know there are a lot of like funnier books. There's like you know like the wrestle crap book and that kind of stuff which I love, uh, but it's just like the funny moments of my childhood. You know, anybody would love that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I just saw a kind of like a hole in the market for, for um, you know, it's the book's not exhaustive, but it's as broad as I could make it in the space that I was given. Um, and, and, I, and I really think that, you know, it's fun for anybody who's a wrestling fan now uh, or who's a wrestling fan ever. And, uh, you know, I say that because <laughs> people have been saying it to me, but that was the goal all along, you know. And, and um, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that nobody knows, and there's a lot of stuff in there, there's a lot of moments that you've, that you remember that you lived through, but I tell them through a sort of different perspective. So, uh, you can kind of relive those, those moments from your childhood all over again. Uh, so, you know, uh, hopefully, hopefully people will like it if they give it a shot. Yeah. And that last point is, is totally what I love so much about it. And I think I mentioned that sort of in the beginning too, about how there's these moments that I remember a certain way or understood a certain way. And I think the book does a great job of kind of, like you said, presenting them in a different way. Uh, very last thing, and I'll let you go. Uh, the last couple of weeks, we've been doing something new on the show. And maybe you've noticed this on Twitter, that there's this, this goat, right? Everyone likes to say, so-and-so is the greatest of all time at this. And it, it kind of came about with Mariano Rivera. 
uh, when he was retiring and, and how people were anointing him the, the greatest of all time, and it w- which, by the way, I agree with. I'm not debating it. But we kind of thought it would be fun on the show to make our own nominations in certain categories. Like, for example, uh, my partner uh, nominated Pink as the greatest starburst of all time, which, I mean, I totally disagree. I think it's red. Um, and, and actually, uh, one of my first ones on the show was WrestleMania 3. I, I said, you know, every month uh, the wrestling announcer says that it's going to be the greatest night in wrestling history before the pay-per-view, right? And uh, right. I said, in my opinion, the only time they were right was WrestleMania 3. So I'm just going to ask, just, we'll just real quick, because like I said, I know I'm way over. But, uh, sir, I'll give you some categories, and you tell me what you think would be the greatest of all time in that category. Is that cool? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so you kind of already answered this one, but wrestling book, you're you're gonna go with the Foley one. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, all right, wrestling. I will pick- say, I will say, yeah. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll, I'll couch that. And the, there's one book that was incredibly uh, important to me in the writing the book, which is I don't think it's even available anymore. Uh, called Fall Guys. That uh, that you know, I, I source it in the book. It's actually it's pretty wonderful, and it's a nice little history of like wrestling from. Uh, 1920 to 1950 or something like that, or 1940. I mean, it's 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 pretty amazing for what it is. Uh, but Foley's book is the best. Uh, wrestling pay per view. Oh man, um, I'm always bad at these questions. I think for me, it's really hard not to say WrestleMania three. Um, My man. <laughs> But I would say, but but I really have a very special place in my heart for WrestleMania two because it is just the wackiest pay per view ever. I mean, if you really wanted to show somebody what wrestling was like in the early eighties, uh, you know, there's like Adrian Adonis versus Uncle Elmer was on right. that card, and that yeah. was a WrestleMania. Like, it's epic. Yeah. Oh, I just watched that not too long ago, and. Um... Oh, yeah. Uh, we'll have to do this another time. <laughs> like, another time we should just do, like, 20 minutes on the first four WrestleManias or something. And just, that'd be really fun for me, at least. Maybe not anyone else but us. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, WWE slash F champion? The greatest WWF champion of all time? Yeah. Well, okay, this is going to be really controversial, but I think the answer has to be Hulk Hogan. I mean, if you say what the greatest of all time is, there's a million ways in which that you could say he wasn't. That, right. He wasn't the, the greatest, but but the the point of being a uh, a wrestler is being a star, and he and he was the biggest star wrestling scene. Yeah, I'm with you. I don't even think it's debatable. What what about the greatest wrestling announced team of all time? Who? Oh man, that's really hard. I mean, you know, I'm I'm partial to the old Memphis guys, like Lance Russell and Dave Rod, but no, but there and there's a lot of old territorial guys who were really really great. Um, but I think the greatest, and this is this comes with a huge asterisk because they, they it didn't last for long and it wasn't uh, it didn't have a chance to really develop. But I think Jim Ross and Paul Heyman uh, is my is my favorite announced team. Yeah, I, I'd probably go go Heenan and Gorilla, but I think we talked about this last week, me, me and my partner, that a lot of these answers are going to depend on when you grew up or or, or something like that. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, Heenan Gorilla is really hard to argue against, uh, but they were working in such a different world. I mean, it's it, it's it was just, uh, you know, it was like a, it was a it was a comedy duo. It hardly mattered what was going on in the ring, and and uh, and you know, to a certain extent, uh, I, I I discounted, I guess, for that. All right. Like we said, David Schumacher, he writes for Grantland about wrestling, and he's got a great new book, which I highly recommend, called The Square Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling, which you can buy in bookstores and 
on all of the different ebook formats. You can find David on Twitter, aka the Masked Man, and I have to thank you so much because I think we said 20 minutes and it's closer to an hour, and I'm slightly embarrassed and sorry about that, but really appreciate the time and the honesty. And this was wow, such a great, great time for me. Thank you very, very much for being on the show today. Hey, no problem at all, man. It was a blast. All right. I want to thank our guests today for being on the podcast, Jeff Merrick from the Merrick versus Wyshynski podcast and the Rogers Sportsnet. Also want to thank David Shoemaker, who I wonder how many times I'd like someone to, to compile a stat. How many times did I correctly call him David Shoemaker and how many times did I incorrectly call him David Schumacher? It is Shoemaker. Yes. I asked him to clarify it for me before I interviewed him. And then Shirley went on to incorrectly pronounce it three to four or five times. You know what? Is it incorrect? Like, I I always thought it was cool that Derek Roy, when he was first coming up in the league, people called him Derek Roy, and he's French Canadian, so his name is technically he's said Derek Wah or however they say it, but he's like, it's all right. You know what I mean? Like that's right. that's how they pronounce it here. So. Well, I have to say I loved having David on the show today, so I hope he does forgive me for the couple of times that I maybe. From what I remember, you've said Shoemaker most of the time. Okay, good. Good. I'm trying to. <laughs> yeah. uh, but thanks to both of those guys for being on the show. Two very different interviews, one kind of tight and brief and one a little bit more long form, kind of an interview that really lends itself to this podcast format, given that we don't have time restraints. Yeah, the one thing we've had fun with, I think, lately, particularly toward the end of this season three, is it seems like we've had one serious, like hard, topical sports interview. And then we'd have something that's a little bit that allow we talk about how we do sports sports related stuff just media stuff or just what we like and that's kind of how we've had the end of some of these interviews have been it's it's fun i think that way well you know there's no one telling us what to do like we get to decide this on our own right and i think at some point i said given that let's do some stuff that if we were told what to do probably wouldn't fly no, right, like Pearl Jam specific. But, I mean, I don't think we've gotten anything from anybody saying, like, hey, that was totally boring. So. No, as a matter of fact, the Pearl Jam thing has done nothing but increase our fan base. Yeah. Because people are picking up on us being the Pearl Jam sports podcast. <laughs> you know what I mean? As yeah. crazy as that might sound. And we got some more stuff in our Pearl Jam Superfan series coming up. Uh, you can find us on the internet, www.sports-casters.com, where you can find our archives featuring all of our episodes from the past. You can also find us on Twitter, at sports underscore casters, where we encourage your nominations for the greatest of all time. Tell us how we're wrong. And you can also email us at thesportscasters at gmail.com. All right, next week, uh, let's see, how should we do this? So... Don and I are going to have to talk about this, but next Wednesday, I have an interview scheduled with Artie Lang, which I mentioned. Oh, it's this early. Or it's yeah, it's up Wednesday quick. the 13th. So maybe we might wait to do – if we can, we'll probably wait and put the podcast out Wednesday going into Thursday. And if we do it that way, Artie will be on next week with Katie Baker. If it's not going to work out, we need to stick to our original schedule. The Artie Lang 
interview isn't going to get dated, no. so he would just be on the next one. Regardless, Artie Lang is either going to be on next week or the week after that. Don and I will have to work out. Unless it was so good we wanted to just push out a separate podcast of its own. The or... only thing is it's only gonna, we only have 10 minutes. Okay. So probably gotcha. it'd be a little thin maybe on its own, but we'll figure that out. Regardless, in the next one to two weeks, Katie Baker from Grantland and Artie Lang. So I'm really excited about those things. So one last thing, and I get us started today. You know, in a life of really privileged and great moments, uh, this weekend when I'm all said and done and look back on it is going to be one that's going to stick out as one of the best. You know, it started off Thursday finally getting engaged to the love of my life and getting ready to prepare for the next phase of our lives and then being on the Yale campus for the first time ever with both of my brothers on the night that Yale University raised its first and only team national championship banner and being able to see what was really the breakout weekend hockey-wise for my brother on the ice, not only did he score an absolutely nasty goal on Friday, but he scored two huge goals on Saturday as well and earned himself a ECAC Player of the Week nomination. So it was really a fun weekend. And one thing I'll say about it, on Saturday, the player, the captain's parents, uh, they invite all the parents and families to a dinner in this room called the Schley room, which is downstairs at the arena. Okay. And the idea is that the freshman parents get a chance to introduce themselves, meet all the other parents and maybe parents that don't know each other, get to introduce themselves and you eat dinner and it's before the game. And then you go watch the game. Well, it's the first time I had ever been there for it. And it was a real treat. You know, I got to sit there listen to all the parents talk about the journeys that their particular families took to end up at such a dinner. And it made me sit back and kind of realize what a privilege it is to have a brother capable of playing D1 at a school as prestigious as Yale. And it really was a great weekend, and um, I'm going to remember it for a long time. All right, one last thing for me, and uh... – that fulfills the Yale quota, by the way. I'm not sure we hit it. I wasn't here for the interview. We got so. a little in during the Merrick interview. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, from the do as I say, not as I do department, uh, I hope everyone is out there voting today and doing your civic duty and uh, def- uh, participating in the right that people have fought and died for. One Buffalonian did it uh, in a way that's kind of funny. It's, it's kind of funny uh, after I just say that people have fought and died for this right. This guy exercised that right by taking out or using the ballot sheet and with every write-in vote voting for Kiko Alonso. And Deadspin has the pictures of uh, his ballot with Kiko Alonso written in in every spot, so for every office. And I think it's pretty funny. And as usual, commenters on the Deadspin article are pretty funny as well. Uh, One guy saying, what an idiot. If he was so eager to throw away his vote, why didn't he just vote libertarian? Somebody else says, on the Bills, veterans haze the rookies by making them become Buffalo politicians. (laughs) So uh, uh, he considered writing in Scott Norwood, but found his platform to be too far to the right. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, Funny stuff. Deadspin always doing their their usual silliness, but uh, 
Yeah, I guess if you hear this, if you're listening immediately after we post this and can make it out to a balloting location, go out and do it. Uh, it's a cool right we have. You might as well use it. Thank you.